Welcome to All Sides with Anna Staber. Today, we're talking about our moon and the search for exoplanets. Our moon is shrinking, growing skinnier and smaller over the last several hundred million years as its core cools. NASA compares it to a grape that shrivels into a raisin, except in the case of the moon, the process creates moonquakes. These seismic phenomena are intense and could pose a threat to both the future of human settlement and the placement of new equipment on its surface. Joining me now to talk about the shrinking moon is Thomas Waters, a senior scientist emeritus in the Center for Earth and Planetary Studies at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. Welcome to All Sides, Tom. Oh, thank you for having me. So the moon is getting smaller as it cools. Can you tell us why? Yes, you, you sort of covered it uh, in your introduction there. That uh, you know, I think it's a common misconception that people have about the moon that it's this ge- geologically inactive body, but the interior of the moon is still hot. It still has a liquid outer core, molten liquid outer core, which is cooling down, and as it cools, the interior contracts, and then the outermost layer, the crust, has to uh, adjust to that, and that causes these contractional, these little contractional faults, which we've now found all over the moon, including at the South Pole in in some of the Artemis three candidate landing uh, regions. So yeah, it it it's a phenomenon that's going to continue now. The, the, from our estimates at looking at all these small contractional faults, the moon hasn't contracted much. We, we estimate about 160 feet uh, change in diameter probably over the last tens to 100 million years. So it's not something you're going to notice at all. That answers does... my next question, which was, can we see it with the naked eye? No, no, it, it won't change anything about total eclipses or anything that uh, uh, you normally see uh, with the moon. Um, it's, again, it's a very, very small change. Um, but it is associated with moonquakes, and some of those moonquakes can be strong. Will the shrinking eventually stop? Um, only until the moon, uh, cool its interior cools completely. And, and partly the Earth uh, contributes to this formation of these contractional faults because of uh, the tidal stresses that the earth puts on the moon just as the moon puts you know controls our tides on the earth the opposite happens on the moon so that stress that's coming from those tidal forces is actually helping to create these small contractional faults so that will also diminish with time because the moon is receding slowly away from the Earth, um, but no time soon. And, and we don't expect the moon's interior to cool off anytime soon. So this is going to be going on for a while. Why is it important to figure out the epicenter or where these moonquakes are happening? No, that's a great question. We We knew from the Apollo seismometers, and these were four seismometers that were placed on the moon by Apollo astronauts 50 years ago, uh, that we knew that that there were these strong, shallow moonquakes. In other words, moonquakes that occurred uh, not very deep in the interior of the moon, but near the the surface. 
And But we didn't really know where they were coming from until we imaged the moon with the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter camera, which has this very, very high-resolution telescopic cameras, and we were able to find now thousands of these young contractional faults. And we reanalyzed the seismic data and determined that these contractional faults are very likely the source of many of these shallow, strong, shallow moonquakes. And so that does give us pause because we've now found these same faults at the South Pole, as I said, in, in the re- some of them are in the regions of the candidate landing sites. But, so- and I will add that one of the strongest moonquakes that was recorded by the seismometers was actually located in the South Polar region. So we know they occur there. The thing is that they're not very frequent, like earthquakes on the Earth. I mean, I, you could use the example of the San Andreas. If you were just deciding you were going to take a, a, a trip to walk along part of the San Andreas, you don't have much to worry about. But if you build a house on the San Andreas Fault and you're going to live there for 30 or 40 years, then you have something you might want to be a little worried about. Because the probability, the longer the time uh, that you're there, the greater the probability that something you're going to have an event. So when it's not going to be a problem for the Artemis, these short-term Artemis uh, landing missions, it's more of a concern if we, when we put long-term habitats on the moon or outposts, and we want to be careful where we locate them, so that we're maybe not very close to one of these young faults. And these faults, do are we getting better at predicting when moonquakes might occur? I know there's a lot of monitoring, say, out in California and Oregon to try and guess when an earthquake might happen. Are we doing something similar on the moon? No, we, we don't. We, we, the moon, the situation on the moon is, again, we're more using the past history. We think... We think uh, one of these shallow moonquakes occurs probably around every 100 days on the moon from what we had from the Apollo seismometers. But just like on the Earth, there's no way to predict them really accurately. And um, I just want to interrupt for a second to say, for those no. who don't know, uh, a seismometer is an instrument that measures the shaking produced by a quake. Just in case anybody's that's like, what's right. a seismometer? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And it's it's fascinating to me that this is happening all over the moon. Can you help paint a picture for us of what this looks like? So when you're looking at a picture of the moon, does it look kind of like a mountain range or a crater? Like what is a sign that there's seismic activity? Well, what we what we found, and again, this is one of the reasons that we didn't really know about these the, uh, all these small contractional faults until we got there with the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter in 2009, and we started to image the Moon at a at high enough resol- highest resolution that we had ever seen from orbit, and then they started showing up everywhere. So if you're on the surface of the moon and you're walking up to one of these things, it's going to look like a stair step. It's going to look like maybe you're walking up to a to a wall that might be 10 meters or 10 to 20 meters high. Hmm. Um, like a cliff? So the, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's basically like a scarp cliff. Yeah, the, 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 the cliff face. 
Um, so there, but the the slopes are such that if you keep walking, you're going to be able to. You're probably going to be able to walk up these things without too much trouble. Although, one of the stories I always love about uh, the Apollo 17 mission was when Schmidt and Cernan were trying to drive. There's actually one very close, one of these faults very close to the Apollo 17 landing site, and they tried to drive the rover up over it. And they actually lost traction. They couldn't go straight up. They ended up having to zigzag to get up to the, over the scarp. Um, so they're they're not minor looking features. Some of them can be pretty imposing from the surface, but again, they're not mountains by any means. And it doesn't sound like that's anything that we could see when we look up at the night sky. No, no. You, you, these are again very small, and it's why they went largely undetected until we were. Until we were in position with the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. The moon isn't the only object in our solar system that's experiencing shrinkage with age. Mars is also shrinking. Is that correct? Yes, we think to to some extent, although we don't really have numbers. Mars is a little more complex. Mercury, for sure, we know it has been and is and and the moon and mercury are very similar in that that they have we know that they're one plate bodies when i say that i mean that the earth has this mosaic of lithospheric plates that shift as the as the earth is cooling down that's what causes these plates to move around and you get earthquakes along the plate boundaries and volcanism along the, the plate boundaries on the moon it's just a single plate so that's why it's when it's contracting, the whole moon seems to be contracting rather than that you focusing it on certain boundaries of what might be plates. And Mars, Mars may be a one-plate planet. It looks that way, but there are other suggestions that it might not be. Um, but for sure, Mercury has undergone much more contraction than the moon has. Because these, these, some of these faults that we find on Mercury are monsters. I mean, they literally are mountains. Um, you know, they can be kilometers high rather than just meters high and thousands of uh, meter or kilometers long. It but, just seems to be the way that one-plate planets adjust to their loss of heat. But then Earth, being a multi-plate planet, isn't shrinking in the same way. No, no, it's not. It's that it, it's taking care of that loss of heat from its interior by shifting these this mosaic of plates around. Again, I mentioned the San Andreas. That's one of those faults that's on a plate boundary um, that is shifting um, and can produce very, very strong quakes. So I want to circle back to the South Pole of the moon because it's an area that it seems a uh, lot scientists have theorized about living on one day. And I want to play a cut from former astronaut Leroy Chow talking to CNN about the interest in the South Pole in particular. Perhaps there is water ice uh, in those areas, uh, which would be useful for a number of different things. Of course, uh, ice can be uh, broken down into hydrogen and oxygen uh, for making propellant, rocket propellant. Um, it can be used for other things. And so NASA in particular is very interested in the South Pole. Uh, there are also uh, possibly some kind of mineral deposits there or uh, higher concentrations of possibly valuable uh, elements there. So it sounds like 
the south pole of the moon might be the place we want to look at putting a more permanent installation. I, I think so. I think that's, I mean, the the hope and the notion is that there are areas in the south pole uh, and at, at both poles, actually, that never see sunlight. <clears throat> they are just because of the just because of their location on the moon, the sun never shines into these areas. So they're very, very cold. And these become cold traps. So if there's any water that is coming by from or being exposed to the moon from a passing comet, it can be trapped into these, these cold regions, these permanently shadowed regions. And that's where the the idea is that there may be uh, reservoirs of ice mixed in with the with the lunar soil. It won't be like you couldn't take it's a not brush a river. and brush away the soil and then ice skate, but um, it'll be ice that's mixed in with that with what we call the regolith. That's fascinating. I I mean. You know, I, I'm a sci-fi nerd. I've grown up on this idea of living on the moon, colonizing Mars, you know, exploration beyond our solar system. And to, to have it feel as though it might be possible in my lifetime is just wild. No, I agree. I feel the same way. <laughs> no, and we had a successful, we had another piece of news here in our in our return to the moon. Um, the Intuitive Machines um, successfully launched uh, on a Falcon uh, rocket today. So we're, we've got a spacecraft that is now heading for the moon and could land somewhere around February 22nd if everything goes well. And it's going to come down near the south pole of the moon on the near side, but, on, but at near the south pole. Unmanned, right? It is unmanned, yes. It, it's going to be – it could be the first – well, if, if we're successful, it'll be the first United States uh, return to the moon since 1972. So um, it's going to be very exciting to see. Uh, and that it's going to pave the way for a whole series of, of other commercial uh, spacecraft going taking instruments to the moon. When you say intuitive spacecraft, what do you mean? What is, what is this going to uh, do when it, once it gets there? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I probably misspoke. It's the, the name of the company that's building this is Intuitive Machines. Ah, gotcha. Oh, so this um, is not yeah, a NASA. This is a private company. This is private company. This is part of the formula that NASA has put in place to use commercial companies to place uh, instruments on the moon. So this, this hopefully there was a, there was an attempt uh, by a, a company called Astrobotics that unfortunately failed um, earlier in the year. Um, so this is the second attempt, but there are a whole series of these coming down the road. So, yeah, stay tuned. We have a lot going on in the moon here in the next couple of years, including, again, getting ready for the Artemis missions to the moon, which hopefully will happen in now uh, uh, two years from now or so. That was Thomas Waters a senior scientist emeritus at the National Air and Space Museum Center for Earth and Planetary Studies. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, my pleasure. And maybe one day we'll have coffee together on the moon. Sounds good. <laughs> it's a date. <laughs> Coming up, we're talking with two Ohio State astronomers about exoplanets and extraterrestrial life. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. 
Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staber. For as long as humans have been staring up at the stars, we've been wondering whether there were other people, other beings on other planets, civilizations beyond our solar system. It's a tantalizing question that scientists and sci-fi writers have spent centuries trying to answer. In the absence of concrete evidence, we've conjured our own worlds with our own ideas on alien life forms. But new research using powerful, high-tech telescopes may finally be providing some clues. Joining me now is Ohio State astronomy professor Rick Pogi. Welcome to All Sides. Thank you. And Ji Wong, who was the co-author of a recent study about exoplanets. Welcome to All Sides. Thank you for having me. So, Dr. Wong, your research uses high-powered telescopes to detect chemical traces of oxygen, carbon dioxide, methane, and water on exoplanets, meaning planets outside our solar system. Can you walk us through how that works? Because when I think of a telescope, I think of seeing distant objects, not detecting distant chemicals. Yeah, it all comes down to spectrum. Because um, when you talk about these different molecules, such as carbon dioxide and oxygen, they all show very distinctive lines if you sort through the photons coming from a star. Usually when we see a star, is a spot. But if you sort the color like Isaac Newton did a while ago, you can see different colors. But on top of those colors, you could see the absorptions of molecules such as oxygen and the methane and the CO2. And that's the basic idea. How can we identify the chemical molecules in the atmospheres of exoplanets. And because these elements are something called biosignatures, which might tell us whether there's life on these planets? Some of them are. Uh, part of it is just saying, does this planet have an atmosphere? <laughs> if you can answer that question, you've gotten the first step. Once you find an atmosphere, the question is whether you see signs of the presence of life. Life is a basically a chemical process that's way, way out of equilibrium. And so you see elements in the atmosphere that would not be there if something wasn't continually replacing them. So for example, methane would be absent from an atmosphere like the Earth if there was no life. It would just be destroyed by sunlight within oh. a very short time. But if you have bacteria like blue-green algae that often mess up our lakes are called methanogens. They make me methane as part of photosynthesis. Methane present in an atmosphere like the Earth means that something is constantly replacing it. And one of those things that can replace is life. Oh, that's fascinating. Now, do you look at this over time? Like, are you looking maybe for like fluctuations? I'm making sort of a wavy motion with my hand here. If you have exquisite data like we can collect from the Earth atmosphere, yes, you could see the seasonal change of methane. But for us, for a distant exoplanet, we would uh, claim victory if we see a combination, for example, of methane and oxygen. That would be uh, what we usually call the New York Times <laughs> cover. 
Gotcha. No. Uh, just for context, how far away are these exoplanets? Well, the nearest one is, is less than three light years away, or almost three light years away. That's Proxima Centauri A. It's probably the nearest, well, pl terrestrial planet, one that's got a rocky surface. We've seen them as far away as a few thousand light years towards the middle of our galaxy because we have a broad range of methods we can use to detect them. It's kind of luck to detect them, and so we take them where we get them. Three light years away for laymen, what is that, like if I were trying to travel there, how long would it take? <laughs> way, too, way more time than you have. Uh, I figured. To travel from the Earth to Proxima Centauri A by the fastest spacecraft we've ever built would take about 72,000 years. Okay, so very, very far away. Generations far away. Um, but can you walk us through what you learned about Proxima Centauri B, Dr. Wang? Yeah, in a recent paper that we published, uh, led by an undergrad student at OSU, um, we have a list of exoplanets that are amenable for detection of biosignatures, and Proxima Centauri B is on top of the list because it's closest one and therefore give us the highest chance of uh, studying its atmosphere. So what we did is we did a, a detailed simulation using an extremely large telescope to see with the available telescope and the instrument, we can detect oxygen and the methane and other biosignatures in the atmosphere. And what we found is that it is doable with the next generation ground-based telescope that with an aperture that is size, three size, three times bigger than we currently have. So these are different than, say, the Hubble telescope or the James Webb telescopes. These are, these are here on Earth. They're not going out into the solar system. Right. Yeah, they are on Earth. That's what we call the ground-based as opposed to space-based telescopes such as Hubble and the James Webb Space Telescope. Do you guys use any of those pictures from those space telescopes in conjunction with the ground ones? Is it kind of a combination, or are they doing two totally separate things? All the time. Uh, work I'm doing measuring not exoplanets, but looking for the elements of life, carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen, how it's spread through the galaxy. We use the Large Binocular Telescope on the Earth with instruments that OSU and others have built. We recently got time with James Webb to investigate the infrared parts of the spectrum, and we've used Hubble to investigate the ultraviolet parts of the spectrum. We all get different pieces of data that we can use, and it gives us that bigger picture, and having those assets is absolutely essential to making it work. So in your paper, Dr. Wong, when you describe uh, Proxima Centauri b and another planet called GJ887b, that's a heck of a name, they're described as super-Earth planets, but that doesn't mean they're like Earth, right? Can you define that for us? Yes. So super-Earth usually means planets that are slightly bigger than Earth, and they are missing in our solar system. If you look at the planets in our solar system, they are either terrestrial as big as Earth or gaseous planet as small as Neptune. Mm. Most of the exoplanets that we know fall into the size between Earth and the Neptune. And for those planets that are slightly bigger, for example, one to two Earth radii, we call them super-Earth. They are what we can get for now. And 
Are these telescopes, Dr. Pogi, are they our best detection tool in trying to learn whether life exists elsewhere, given that, you know, it would take 72,000 years to get to the next planet? Yes, they are. They're, they're going to be how we detect life on other worlds first, by finding things like biosignatures, by finding actual environments on these planets. This is going to be very challenging. This is something we're not going to answer today. We're going to answer it in the 2030s and maybe the 2040s. We're building the world's largest telescopes on the ground, the so-called extremely large telescopes, because we need lots of light to spread it out to look for these extremely faint biosignatures in atmospheres. We're probably going to have six or 10 targets, if we're lucky, in the nearby solar neighborhood for investigation. And each of those targets could require tens to hundreds of days worth of data collection to be able to do this. We're also designing next generation space telescopes beyond Hubble and Webb, which will again be launched in the 30s and 40s, whose primary designs are for detecting these signatures. Can I ask, when you say large telescope, super large telescope, extra super duper large telescope, what, what do you mean? Do you mean just the size of the glass or what, what makes them? It's the size of the primary mirror. All of our telescope, all modern telescopes are reflecting telescopes. The giant on Palomar had a, a 200 inch diameter mirror. It was the biggest telescope in the world until the 1980s and 1990s when we went up to 10 meters, so about 30 feet across. Oh my goodness. That's the current state of the art for a large telescope. Under construction in Chile, a, t- a telescope by Europe and by the United States, uh, two of them on different mountains are going into 20 to 30 meters in diameter. So going up another factor of nine in collecting area. Another telescope designed for Hawaii would go up also to this 30 meter class. We call those, unfortunately, extremely large telescopes. <laughs> There was, there was a design at one point for a 100-meter telescope, would have been as big across as a football field as long, called the OWL, the Overwhelmingly Large Telescope. We ran out of, <laughs> it, we ran out of, of uh, Superlatives. exaggerative words. Yeah. So these are, these are being designed. They're multi-billion dollar facilities. They're going to really push the state of the art uh, using the best instruments. And they're going to be coming online during the 2030s. They're right now under construction. It feels like this has to be such a fascinating time to work in your industry. Indeed, indeed. Um, and to build on uh, Rick's um, statement about huge telescope, it's not that our astronomers are very greedy. Uh, we're very happy with what we have, but in order to search for biosignatures, we do need really large telescopes. And the reason is that we need a light bucket because we need a lot of photons from those stars to study the, their atmospheres in detail. And also, we need the resolution because those planets are very close to their host stars. And with the current telescope, we cannot distinguish the planet light from the starlight. We need a very big telescope to separate the planet from the star. One of the things you also tested was the telescope's ability to differentiate noise. Can you explain that for us? Yes. So the noise usually comes from how many photons you can get from the star. To give you an analogy, is like identifying a suspect at nighttime versus in the daytime. Oh, okay. Right. That, it, I, I get that. If someone escaped at nighttime, you can say, okay, this person is roughly six feet. But if you can see that person in the daytime, you can say, okay, that's definitely six one or six two. The the error that you can get depends on how much light you get. So that's why you know we use this uh, uh, the size of the telescope 
as a gauge of how bright the star, or how many signal, how much signal we can receive from the star to determine if the signal of the planet can overwhelm the noise that is usually coming from the star. Oh, that's so fascinating. I think I could have been a science major in another life. I love this stuff. Uh, I do have to ask, when you're looking at these images, you know, I think of the images that we have of the Earth and Mars, those, you know, beautiful images of Jupiter. What kind of images are we getting from these exoplanets? I assume they're far less detailed. When we have pictures of exoplanets, all we see is quite literally a little dot of light. We see no details at all. It's completely hidden to us. The, the term of art we use at, uh, for coming down from NASA from Carl Sagan is what we're looking for and looking for other Earths is looking for little blue dots. And that's what we will see as the first exo-Earth exo if we ever get an image of it near its star. But that little blue dot is like two or three billion times fainter than its parent star. So we, our detector technologies now are capable of counting single photons coming from space. So we are so sorry for photons, we have to build bigger and bigger and bigger glass. That's the trick. And even with that, all we're going to see is a little blue dot. But that little blue dot will be everything, it sounds like. It will be everything. If we, can, if we see the little blue dot, that's only the start. The next part would be getting a spectrum of the little blue dot. If I get a spectrum of the little blue dot, I can tell what's in its atmosphere, or even if it has an atmosphere. The blue is kind of hinting it's got an atmosphere. If I watch it for a long time, I might see it vary in brightness. I'd be seeing continents and oceans rolling by as the little blue dot rotates. And so despite the fact I can't make a picture like the artists want to draw, I should be able to, we should be able to back out with our data what the details of the planet. I can tell an ocean world from a jungle world from a desert world. Oh, my gosh. Just by variations in the light and the spectrum. Is that at all based? Like, have we looked at Earth and learned that, and therefore we can extrapolate it out? One of the ways we've done that with Earth is actually looking at the moon. Oh. Because if you ever see a crescent moon, like just after sunset, you notice how you could see the other part of the moon very faintly. That's called Earth shine. That's light from the Earth reflected off the moon. We actually observe that Earthshine, and we've identified the biosignatures we're looking for in Earthshine spectra. So a lot of our models for what we expect to see from the little blue dot are based on looking back at our world. If, like from Cassini, spacecraft around Saturn, sees the Earth as a little blue dot just through the rings of Saturn. The most fascinating thing I've ever learned about Saturn is that that ring and all the debris is like a crushed moon. And that was so fascinating to me. I don't know why. That's always a fact that's stuck in my mind from like elementary science class. <laughs> but man, I have to imagine that if you guys see that, you see that light variation in light in the little blue dot. Is that is that a sign that life exists elsewhere? Like, do we break out the champagne and declare that we're not alone in the universe? It's going to take a lot before we break out the champagne. But we're starting to what we're, a lot of work is being done now to identify what are the signatures we should look for, and as particular, what are the signatures that could fool us? What are things that look like a oh. biosignature but aren't? So a lot of times you have to sort of say, what are you going to see that that's fooling you? What are other ways to make oxygen? What are other ways to make methane that have nothing to do with life? Mm, that makes sense because I suppose chemicals can exist. Well, actually, I do want to ask. Is it possible that we're missing life because we don't understand ways it exists, like things that will breathe without oxygen? Not to get too sci-fi on you. So there is a, um, a lot of things that we have, be, 
have to be very cautious about, right? Because seeing oxygen as a methane could be the signal, but it's not 100% the guarantee. For example, oxygen can also be produced by the breakup of CO2 molecules on the high intense radiation of UV light. Mm. And the methane could also be produced by geological cycles, such as rock, producing also methanes. So we have to exclude a lot of other possibilities before claiming victory. So that there won't be one aha moment. There won't be say, hey, there's life on that world, go to the New York Times, break out the bubbly. We're going to need a preponderance of evidence, and it's going to be a fact chain that we're going to follow. And one thing astronomers are talking about now is what is the protocol we're going to use before we make the big announcement? Let's take a break. We're talking with Ohio State astronomers, uh, Ohio State astronomy professors, excuse me, Rick Pogge and Ji Wong about exoplanets and life on other planets. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staver. We're talking this hour about the moon, exoplanets, and the powerful telescopes gathering data about the potential for extraterrestrial life. Still with us is Ohio State astronomy professors Rick Pogge and Ji Wong. In the opening of your research paper, Dr. Wong, you write that we may finally answer whether life exists outside Earth in the next few decades. Does this mean aliens or just what does it mean, essentially? It means signs of life, right? Because I already mentioned that the closest star is a few light years away. It's virtually impossible with the current technology to get in contact or even communicate with the aliens. So all we're talking about are the signs of life, uh, evidence that another planet could be inhabited. And planets outside our solar system, which are known as exoplanets, um, I read that NASA estimates there's at least one of them for every star in the galaxy, which means there's something on the order of a billion planets in our galaxy alone. I guess I just have to ask, statistically speaking, do you think we are the only living creatures in the universe? I think it's highly unlikely that we're the only living creatures in the universe. Uh, certainly life on Earth started as soon as the Earth settled down, probably within a few hundred million years of the last major uh, bombardment episode three and a half, four billion years ago, and has maintained on this planet for a long time. Life like us, that's relatively more recent. So it got going really fast, and the elements that life is made of are the most common elements in the universe. It's hard to see that that combination hasn't happened elsewhere. Dr. Wong? I agree. I think when we talk about, or if we talk about microbic life, 
I think it's uh, probably elsewhere. Advanced technology, um, I'm still not sure. So you, you don't know for sure whether you think there are people like you on, say, Alpha Centauri B or whatever that Prima Centauri B looking back at us. Probably not. <laughs> Actually, if you looked at the Earth, if you were visiting the Earth over its history, you wouldn't find us very often. If you stretched out the life of the lifetime of the Earth to a full year, mm. human beings have only been around for the last few seconds. It's, we, we, we are a blink of an eye in geological time. But you would have found biosignatures of methane for most of our history, oxygen photosynthesis only in the last couple billion years, maybe half of the Earth's history. So we're not expecting to find E.T., but we are expecting to find is something probably like what was life on our planet for the vast majority of our geologic history, and that's the byproducts of microbial life and photosynthesis. So if I'm understanding you correctly, it's possible, it sounds like there's three possibilities. One, that there are planets out there, maybe newer planets with newer stars that look like Earth a couple hundred million years ago. There could be older planets with older stars that look like maybe whatever happens next. And possibly somewhere out there, there's a planet like ours with creatures like us. It could happen. We've got 200 billion stars in the Milky Way. We probably have maybe 100 billion of those have planets. What fraction of those have Earth-like planets? We don't know yet, but we're starting to learn what the distribution of planets is through the galaxy, and eventually we'll have a number. We, it's called Eta Earth. That's one of the numbers we're looking for is what fraction of stars have Earth-like planets in the so-called habitable zones of their stars. Yeah, because you get too close, it gets too hot, you get too far away, it gets too cold, kind of like here in our own solar system. Classic Goldilocks. Uh-huh. So you're looking for the Goldilockses, and then we'll try to learn more about them. Yeah, That's we're- right. Yeah, we're at the step that we already know the st- statistics, as you mentioned. The next step is to study those favorable targets to look for biosignatures. It's so fascinating. I have to ask uh, both of you, and I guess we can start with Dr. Wang, what made you want to get into this kind of research? So to me, the journey is not as other people usually say, growing up, fascinated about a nice guy. I'm a city boy. I don't usually look at a nice sky. And you can't see it very well in a city. No, the light pollution is pretty bad, especially uh, in China. There are cities everywhere. That's when I grew up. Um, but what the fa- what got me into the field was a, a public talk hmm. by a professor uh, at the, my college in China. And then after the talk, I was caught up in a very long conversation with him and that's when I decided to pursue this topic, and they never looked back. I, I grew up in a small town in the Mojave Desert of California. My dad was an engineer for the Navy Department. I live at a place called China Lake, 13,000 people. I could see the Milky Way from my backyard, at least back in the 1970s. I also grew up in the time of Gemini and Apollo. I could, well, when I was a kid, I could tell you the name of every Apollo astronaut. <laughs> I watched Neil Armstrong. I won't Neil ask you Armstrong. to do it right now. <laughs> I asked Neil Armstrong... I watched Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walk on the moon at eight years old, and that stuck with me. I wanted to be an astronaut at first, but I also wanted to be an engineer, then I wanted to be a scientist, and I finally settled on astronomy. It fascinated me to no end. I love physics. I was a physics major as as an undergraduate, but I spent a summer at an observatory and saw that it was a way to measure the universe, and I could build instruments to measure the universe and answer some of really fundamental questions. I just love the whole package. That's how I was led to it. Exoplanets was a total uh, accident for me. 
uh, when I grew up, there was one solar system, our own. And now we know of 5,000. And I've, I've played a role in helping build the instruments that we use to search for, for other planets. And it's been fun. We found almost 100 planets with instruments I've helped build or, or move forward. Can I ask how they get their names? Because, like, you know, G788BQ, like, it just it feels really technical and not very fun. It's a star catalog. Okay. Uh, the G, G stands for Gleazy. It was a person who ge- uh, generated a catalog of stars that appear to move fast on the sky. That's a sign point that they're close. And so this was a catalog of nearby stars. HD is Henry Draper catalog. There's all kinds of different names. We then attach, if we find an exoplanet around that star, we use the primary catalog name, and the first planet will be little b, little c, little d, and so forth. So lowercase. So they made it case sensitive. They're kind of boring and technical. <laughs> but easy for classification and searching. Right. That's probably its purpose. That has been a trend of just name up. Name your favorite planet or star with your pet and then keep talking that until people start to accept that it's a name. <laughs> yeah, I so, yeah, I sort of wonder if we get these Goldilocks ones, if we start to have Earth-like planets, right? We start to narrow down the pool, like maybe one day we'll get names, like real names that we could talk about. And I think All the nearby stars have names. Oh, they right? do. Most of them. Um, It's my understanding that a majority of the search for extraterrestrial life has been done through the use of radio telescopes. What what are those? Are you guys able to explain what that means? Sure. A radio telescope works at radio wavelengths. Instead of using a big antenna like WOSU does to broadcast in all directions, they use a big directional antenna that looks like a satellite dish. And it's able to point at a particular place on the sky and is tuned to detect radio waves. Uh, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence is a rather more advanced method for this. They're using large radio telescopes, which are designed for doing astronomy, for looking at radio emission from active galaxies, black holes, things like that, and piggybacking on that, looking for technological sig- signals. Oh, so this is like when we send music and information out into the universe in the hopes that one day somebody finds it. Maybe. <laughs> something like that. What we're looking for are signals that look unnatural, that look what uh, the term of art we use is an engineered signal, extremely narrow bandwidth, modulation, sitting at a wavelength where natural processes don't exist. Oh, so kind of like your biosignatures. Yes. It looks in a, it looks a special certain way that we can identify. It's not, it's called, it's called a technical, techie signatures. Because this is one way of finding civilization or highly advanced technology, right? It, to me, it's a shortcut of finding life because that, that e- it's easy to piggyback the radio telescope to search for any narrowband, extremely unnatural signal. But even if you detect it, I, I think if you detect it, it will be fantastic. But that does not significantly contribute to, for example, how common life is right, in the universe. Do you think your research could be used in concert with them? So, like, you say, hey, it might be this planet, and then they look for the radio signals? Yes. I think there there has been programs looking for nearby stars, searching for these tacky signatures. As I'm sure you can tell, and as we've been talking in between the breaks, I'm definitely a sci-fi nerd. I'm really hoping that some, like, version of the Douglas Adams Hittiker Guide to the Galaxy exists somewhere out there. I don't know. I, I also wonder, is it possible that there are galaxies where there are multiple Earths with multiple, like, I know we're kind of the Goldilocks, but like, 
is it possible that you could have one or two planets close together that both would have life or is that sort of like a jackpot of that would be a jackpot if we got a, if we had a, a habitable earth or exo earth earth two somewhere within the solar neighborhood which is out to about 100 light years we would be ecstatic we think the chances of that are pretty small maybe actually maybe one or two on average depending on who's doing the stats and how confident they are um, <laughs> but it's possible for example if you if even if you didn't have very modest starflight capability like generation ships that's been shown that you can do a colonization of an entire galaxy within a few million years because colonization and spread is an exponential process. It grows just leaps and bounds once you get going. And if, if other creatures are like us, we're curious. We aren't content to sit around. We want to go somewhere. <laughs> Humans have covered our entire planet, even under the worst circumstances, very, very fast. We're a young species, and we've covered our globe within centuries. So it could happen. Whether you'd find that, well, we have a long time to work with. Are civilizations long-lived, or are we short-lived? We don't know. Oh, that's a really good point. I hadn't considered that. I mean, it feels like we've been on the planet forever, but that might be our own egos. It is our own egos. We haven't been here for very long at all. The Earth has been 99.99% human-free for most of its history. Our technological civilization is barely a century old. We're, we're talking on radio. Radio is just over 100 years old. That's a, an eye blink in the history of the universe. I want to ask a little bit about artificial intelligence and what role you think it might play in helping us learn more about space and what is out there. So we started to get into this field of using artificial intelligence to process some of the signals. It's mm. finding planets around very bright stars or finding these bell signatures among multiple possible false positives. It's like finding a needle in a haystack. Uh, using human power to look for that has its own limitation. We have been thinking about using AI to aid us, you know, to expand our ability of finding this needle in haystack. It's working progress. We have not had solid result um, yet in looking for biosignature. But I think with a combination of powerful telescope and artificial intelligence, this could be a viable pathway to go. And space has historically been a place of international cooperation, the International Space Station being sort of a prime example. Are you guys working with folks from other countries, other programs? Is this like really a collective world effort? Astronomy is very much a world community. There's probably eight to 10,000 of us worldwide. It's a small village by comparison. We have in all of my collaborations that I've been involved in for most of my career have involved at least one and sometimes three continents worth of people. Uh, we collaborate with Europe, Asia, Africa starting to come, come into the fold in astronomy. Our telescopes are located in Chile and various places. So we're a, we're a global science from the get-go. This is a multi-billion dollar process. We need the best minds on it. And you're not going to do that alone. And so international collaboration has been key. Uh, our, our exoplanet network that we use to search for planets, we had people from Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, South America, the United States, Europe, all gathering collectively our data and using it to sift for new planets. 
their day and night, and astronomers usually work at night, <laughs> but they're always daytime. It's always five p.m. somewhere <laughs> in, on Earth, so there are always people help us observing so that we can get continuous data. Oh, that's a good point. So while you're sleeping, somebody else is working. Yep. I guess my we're getting down to the end of our hour together, and it's been fantastic. But I, I my final question is, do you think that we'll have evidence of life, not necessarily of intelligent life or aliens, but I'm 40 years old. Do you think we'll confirm life in the universe before I pass, assuming I'm not hit by a bus tomorrow? <laughs> well, I'm 60, so I sure hope so, because <laughs> I would like to see it. I think we will have evidence, perhaps. And I think it might come from a surprising place. I think the first evidence of life that we're going to find off the Earth will be found in our solar system. And it won't be found on Mars. It will be found under the ice of either Europa or Enceladus. Hmm. That's my prediction. Dr. Wong? I have different predictions because I'm working on exoplanets and we have thousands of them. We're at, really at the doorway of starting some of them in very detail. So I, my prediction would be in the next two decades or so, we will have some evidence of biosignatures somewhere other than Earth, outside the solar system. <laughs> well, we'll have to have you both back on when that happens. I'll bring the champagne, and it'll be a great time. So thank you so much to Dr. Ji Wong, an assistant professor of astronomy at The Ohio State University. Thank you and for having thank, me. And thank you to Dr. Rick Pogge, a distinguished Ohio State astronomy professor. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And that'll do it for this hour of All Sides on 89.7 NPR News.